0: Welcome to AZMCAST, the Competitive Emergency Medicine Podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion, or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ring down, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. So you are the attending in a level one trauma center with full subspecialty capacity. 53-year-old male is coming in by EMS after an ejected MVC, unconscious, unresponsive. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you as the listener a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. First, we welcome Dr. Jenny Plitt, a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine here at the University of Arizona and simulation specialist extraordinaire. Hi, Jenny.
1: Hi, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Uh, Next, we have Dr. Amber Rice, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona and the associate medical director for Northwest Fire District. Hi, Amber.
2: Morning. I'm ready.
0: And lastly, Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the U of A and last month's winner and reigning champion. Welcome, Brian.
3: Hi, Aaron. I didn't read any of the articles this
0: time. (laughs) So... The case, again, is that you are working at a level one trauma center. You have full subspecialty capabilities, and you have a ring down that there's a 53-year-old male coming in by EMS after an ejected MVC, unconscious, unresponsive, and uh, temperature is 36.4, heart rate 85, blood pressure 195 over 115. Respiratory rate of ten, and he's setting ninety-five percent on two liters per nasal cannula. So, Jenny, I'm going to start with you. What is going through your mind?
1: Well, taking his vital signs out of the picture, any trauma patient that comes in that's unconscious, unresponsive, I immediately think of a few things. One, do they have a primary brain injury, and that's why they're unresponsive? Um, two, is there something else causing really bad hypoperfusion to their brain, um, and that's why they're so altered? So. Anything causing hemorrhagic shock or, you know, an obstructive shock like cardiac tamponade, tension pneumos. Or three, is there something else entirely going on, like a medical reason that might be causing them to be altered and unconscious, like hypoglycemia, or or maybe this patient had a stroke or a seizure that caused them to get into a car accident or um, any kind of substances like ethanol or um, drugs that made him altered and get into a car accident. With this gentleman in particular, he's hypertensive, he's predipnic, um, that makes me immediately think of intracranial hemorrhage um, and less likely something like hemorrhagic shock, but a mixed picture. Sometimes people are on beta blockers and that's why they're not tachycardic, even though they are bleeding somewhere. So it could be a mixed picture.
0: Points for an organized approach, points for throwing some pearls like the beta blockaded patient who really is tachycardic uh, and uh, suffering from hemorrhagic shock, and an extra point for using the word bradypnic. Very, very good use of the lexicon. Nicely done, Jenny. All right, Amber, what specifically are you doing to get your team prepared for this patient to come in? What are your top management priorities for this patient even before they arrive?
2: So I, I would say that in general, uh, the reason that most of our poly patients die is from massive head injury. So blunt trauma equals massive head injury. So anyone that's unconscious and responsive, I'm thinking brain injury, just like Jenny said. And I think that my management priorities um, from a, just from what I do in the pre-hospital world are really preventing secondary brain injury. So the things that are going to prevent secondary brain injury uh, preventing hypotension, preventing hypoxia and not hyperventilating the patient. And I would say that a couple of those things are pretty easy to do. And I think we tend to know to put oxygen on someone who's unconscious. Um, that tends to happen pretty quickly, but having my, my face mask out ready to provide ventilation, making sure that I have respiratory therapy uh, available. And then I think that the, one of the biggest things is, um, that we don't think about always in head injured patients. I have something in there so that I make sure that I'm not hyperventilating the patient. We can't do that when everyone's excited in the room with a trauma patient. You need some objective way to measure your ventilation. So I always have end tidal CO2 hooked up and ready. In the pre-hospital world, we carry these little flashing lights called ventilation rate timers. um, And those are really helpful to moderate your respiratory rate. We don't have those um, in the emergency department. So if you're just looking at the bag, you don't see anything. So I make sure to drive everyone's attention to the respiratory rate and make sure that we're um, ventilating that patient at the appropriate rate so we don't harm their brain anymore. So those are my big things. Um, fluids ready to prevent hypotension. So I have the stuff in the room that's ready to treat a primary brain injury You know, on top of the other trauma stuff.
0: How would it change your management for this gentleman if he came in and he was hypotensive instead of hypertensive right now? The main difference I would have, I mean, this is a sick
3: trauma patient who you're kind of going to prepare for everything. You're not sure where the injuries are going to be in an ejected patient. And I agree. You also will eventually consider the medical possibilities um, if your trauma workups starting to be negative. In terms of a lower blood pressure, I think the one thing I would be looking for is possibly a massive transfusion protocol and being ready to establish that or thinking at least of giving blood early. In finding out what my uh, blood bank capabilities were. Um, Otherwise, I don't think it would change too much other than maybe a earlier search for um, causes of bleeding, right? If you're hypotensive and trauma, I gotta go after bleeding and I gotta find where you're bleeding because that's gonna be one, two, and three for me. I don't, you know, if they're septic and have a car accident, I'll deal with that later. Um, They can call it code trauma first and then the code sepsis.
0: We used to refer to those as trauma blues, but that's back in the day. (laughs) Brian, where are you looking for bleeding for the medical students listening?
3: Oh, You know, there's there's major commons uh, or major sources of bleeding. So the first place I like to look is the chest and heart. So both uh, uh, lung cavities, because those are things I can immediately do something about, as well as around the heart mainly that is a cause of hypotension in terms of shock that I want to prevent. So I'm going to be doing that with my ultrasound. The second place I'll look is the belly. Um, That will also be used with a fast exam. Again, I'm wanting to say OR or no R right away, um, or whether they can go to a CT scan and look for um, other injuries. Other places I want to look is the extremities. So extremities can bleed out, um, as is the head. So any external bleeding, would be places I would be looking for. Um, We talk about, you know, bleeding on the floor was the old trauma um, common thing, but people can bleed out from a scalp lack. They can bleed out from oozing venous injuries that you don't place a tourniquet on and you just watch bleed and bleed from that open fracture. So I would be looking for external bleeding. And then the last thing would be like compartmental they talk about, but I find this is pretty rare in terms of a major thigh or humerus um, trauma that caused a fracture and a large hematoma. They say, you, you know, you could lose you know, 1.5 liters into each thigh or something or 750 mils into your humerus um, because those are areas that are expansive, um, secondary to vascular injury and a fracture pattern. But those would be the major injuries um, that I would be looking for and things that I could intervene or know who to call for intervention.
0: Points to Brian for DISPO is job one, taking patient to the OR points off for missing the pelvis. Sorry, man. (laughs) Oh my God. The patient now (laughs) arrives. They're in full C-spine immobilization on a spine board and they are unresponsive. So as we're getting the patient moved over to the bed, Amber, what are your top three management priorities? What are you uh, impressing and making sure that people are doing first?
2: Uh, So I, I think first it's identifying major bleeding. So performing our primary survey without getting Distracted by a whole lot of other things. So, performing our primary survey, making sure that we expose the patient, identify bleeding, uh, identify uh, other immediate life threats. And initially, the one that comes to mind is going to be the patient's airway. So, unconscious, unresponsive patients, uh, I'm thinking making sure that I'm beginning to pre oxygenate that patient, provide ventilation if necessary, and get ready for intubation to sort of manage that airway. At the same time, I'm going to be checking their blood pressure as part of my primary survey and making sure that I don't need to give a large fluid bolus uh, before I decide to intubate the patient. So getting medications ready, all that other stuff, but uh, making sure that I'm preventing the patient from becoming hypoxic, treating and managing and preventing hypotension, and then getting everything else ready to to manage the airway is that's my sort of first anticipated um, major thing while the rest of the team's performing the fast exam and um, looking for for internal injuries.
0: Brian, uh, if you've got limited staff, let's say you're not at one of these level one hospitals. Let's say that you're at an outside community hospital and you've only, or maybe even a critical access hospital, and you've got you, a tech, and an an RN. What are your management priorities going to be then? What are the things that you're going to make sure that you prioritize over others? Yeah, so
3: so I was in the community before, and so I have a different trauma take than uh, what we do in the trauma bay at a level one center. So I actually do my primary survey um, is ABC and then ultrasound. Uh, And a lot of times I actually do the disability exam as the patient's rolling in. I'm asking the patient, hey, can you wiggle your feet and toes? And if they don't do anything, disability sometimes becomes first. And I I know that answer uh, right away. But my Initial question is going to be is this a patient I can keep here and evaluate or do am I going to need to send them? So I really want to know um, What that fast exam what their disability is and if I have like all that negative and they're stable Then I send them to CT to evaluate versus sending them off Um, But I agree, you know You're gonna have to manage the airway before you send them to CT or manage the airway If you're gonna have to transfer them in an unstable patient, but what you're really trying to do is assess you know, transfer, no transfer, and what my capabilities are at the same time keeping the patient stable and fixing things that you can fix um, at the bedside, but not using all your resources of your hospital because you may not have, um, you know, blood. Your blood bank may be an activation that they're not there. And so you don't have any blood. So maybe you have to do a fluid bolus instead of blood products for a resuscitation and a trauma patient. Um, maybe you can't give FFP or platelets. So you have to. Uh, balance your resources with what you have. Um, and I'm going to put my tech and uh, nurse mainly in charge of IV access and medications um, in terms of airway sometimes gets bumped down because I can put them on a non rebreather and figure some stuff out before I put a tube in um, because that's also going to take a lot of resources and the nurse is going to have to draw up meds and do things like that. So to me, you change your priorities around and you're doing more of a holistic What is the most important answer I have to assess right now
0: uh, before I do the full survey, secondary survey, and everything like that? All right, Jenny. So EMS is about to bug out and go see some more patients. Before they leave, they've got very limited time. You have three questions that you're going to ask that are going to change your management. What are they going to be?
1: Mechanism, any um, other passengers' outcomes and then if they found any um, drugs or anything like that on scene.
0: Good. Amber, same question. You got three questions to ask EMS. What three questions are you going to ask them?
2: Yeah, I would ask if at any point they had a, a better mental status So, and what the trend of their vital signs had been. Uh, to me, those are two big factors indicating which direction the patient might be headed. Um, if their blood pressure has been trending down from 150 to 140 to 120, Uh, I'm going to be much more likely to act more quickly on that blood pressure uh, than if they'd been at 120 the entire transport. Um, If any of you guys uh, have read any of the EPIC papers, there have been large studies done or one large study done in Arizona um, looking at pre-hospital traumatic brain injury. uh, Hypotension and hypoxia both associated with increased mortality. Um, And when you combine the two, uh, a very large increase in mortality. So a single episode of hypotension or a single episode of hypoxia in the pre hospital setting, uh, will, will more than double mortality. Uh, so it, it's a big deal. And the, most of the studies that we've done here in Arizona have showed that the inflection point for hypotension occurs at a much higher blood pressure than what we would have. Um, than what we use that typically that 90 range, we say 90 is hypotensive. Um, but if you look at the pre-hospital data, Uh, it's probably around 110. Um, So uh, the the threshold for hypotension in my mind is higher than 90. So I don't let patients get down to 90. I don't even let them get down to 110 before I'm calling them hypotensive and um, aggressively treating their hypotension.
0: Excellent. Brian, you get the leftovers. What three questions do you find most useful for you before EMS gets out? I just want to know the evolution of the patient. Uh, were they walking
3: unseen and now unconscious? Were they unconscious and now they're wiggling their feet and their vital sign changes? Basically, what have they done from arrival to when I see them for the first time? Uh, the second question would be interventions that they've done. Uh, I'd like to know their IV access or attempts or medicines or seat collaring or whatever the hell they've done. Uh, just so I know what I need to do or not do. Um, the third question I would probably ask, was there any family matter um, members or other people that knew this person, um, that they know of, uh, that they heard about that I can reach out to? Um, because in this patient, I have an unresponsive unconscious. So I'm guessing I'm not going to get any history from them. So now I'm looking for other sources and maybe they found a wallet or a cell phone or someone else was in the car as people were alluding to earlier. So looking for that other other people I could reach out to about this patient.
2: That's a good point, Brian, the the medication issue, because there are a, a relatively large number of times, especially with bad head injuries, where the patient is so combative that they're difficult to transport, and they will get sedating medications. Um, so making sure when they arrive, was this patient combative and they got 10 aversed in route, because that does uh, change your evaluation and your management somewhat in terms of you know anticipating hypotension or anticipating Um, changes in their mental status
0: as we're looking over the patient and we're getting the story from ems you're doing your five second look and you see a patient who is not intubated uh who is an obese middle-aged male he's unresponsive and you see an uh a laceration to his left eyebrow, you see some uh, blood coming from the left side of his head from a left parietal scalp hematoma, and you see road rash everywhere and a left wrist deformity that is in a splint. Uh, So Jenny, as quickly as you can, in 30 seconds, walk me through how you're going to examine this guy. If you are doing the resident that's doing the primary and then the secondary survey, what are you doing and in what order are you doing it?
1: All right. Well, like has been previously mentioned, my primary survey, I'm doing my ABCDEs. That's what's in the ATLS guidelines. You want to identify your life-threatening injuries first. You
0: listen to the patient. There are no sonorous respirations. There's no obvious or obstruction. He is breathing, and he's he in that C collar that you wanted.
1: All right. His lung sounds equal?
0: As equal as you can get with an obese trauma patient.
1: All right. <laughs> Um, okay. And then is this head wound you said is bleeding quite a bit. Is it like actively spurting blood at me?
0: No, it's just kind of oozing a little bit. And he's got an ABD pad that's kind of taped over top with some Coban.
1: And how's his, um, color and pulses?
0: Throughout? Color seems to be good. He's got uh two plus radio pulses, two plus PT and DP pulses.
1: All right. What is his GCS? Is he opening his eyes spontaneously or verbal sure to any pain? Does he open his eyes if you pain?
0: uh, painfully stimulate him? Uh, he will not open his eyes, but he will try to localize to that area.
1: Okay. So he's localizing to pain motor-wise.
0: Quick break. Uh, one, uh, your first line. What is your painful stimulus in a trauma patient, Amber?
2: Usually the nail bed pressure is go-to.
0: Brian? Whatever hurts, I'm going to
3: touch it and move it, and if it hurts, then they hurt.
0: (laughs) Jenny?
1: Uh, I do nail bed pressure and sometimes the nipple. Little bit of nipple pressure. I knew you were <laughs> gonna say
2: that.
0: Extra points <laughs> for Jenny, honestly. <laughs> I
1: know that Jenny was gonna go for the nipple twist. I knew you that. What? I've had more success with twisting nipples and eliciting a pain response than I've had with nail beds.
3: We're gonna call it a plitty twister.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so good.
0: Ex- extra <laughs> points for Brian. That was fantastic, <laughs> my friend. Okay, somehow back to the case. Uh, so you get, a, you get a GCS from this patient of seven five for motor, one for verbal, and one for eyes. And when you do that, you also notice that he's not localizing with his right, he's just localizing with his left.
1: Oh my God, so he seems to have a focal neurologic deficit.
0: Dun, dun, um, what's the pupillary? So his uh, left pupil is larger than his right and sluggish.
1: So that's D, disability. Then I'm going to expose the patient, get him completely undressed, look for any other obvious wounds, um, cover him back up to prevent hypothermia, some warm blankets. So that's your primary (laughs) survey, the quick and dirty. And then I would move on. um, And then any adjuncts during that time, if you want x-rays, Foley's fast exam, I'm definitely doing along with my primary survey. Um, and then I would move on to my secondary survey, which is a more in-depth head-to-toe eval
0: We act like this is all done in succession uh, Like it's all done in series. But in reality, we're doing this in parallel when we have enough people However, if you have people that don't know what the trauma dance looks like or you don't have enough partners to dance with Sometimes you do need to prioritize one of these over the other so With a score of Dr. Rice in the lead with 13, Dr. Plitt and Drummond tied for second with 11, we are going to move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. Brief overview of the history. History: Present illness is that this is a 53-year-old male who was brought in by EMS after an ejected motor vehicle collision. He it was a single vehicle accident at highway speeds versus a guardrail. He was found 15 feet from the vehicle. He smells of alcohol. He has a left forearm deformity and diffuse road rash. Nothing is known about his past medical history, his medications, or allergies. A review of systems? Who cares? This is the emergency department. His vital signs now on arrival to the ED. Temperature 37.2, heart rate 62, blood pressure 210 over 110, respiratory rate of 10, and satting still 95% on two liters per nasal cannula. Uh, He is an obese middle-aged male who is unresponsive. He has diffuse road rash and a left eyebrow laceration. There's a left parietal scalp hematoma, and his left pupil is larger than his right and sluggish. His uh, heart is regular rate and rhythm with no murmurs. He has good distal pulses and perfusion, and his breath sounds are as equal as you can get in a trauma patient. His abdomen is soft, apparently not all that tender, and his musculoskeletal exam just shows a stable pelvis and a left wrist deformity GCS again is seven with five for motor one for verbal one for eyes and there's no movement of his right side EFAST is negative does not show a hemo pneumo does not show any free fluid in the abdomen um, So real quick predictions Jenny, where's this guy headed? Do you think
1: oh to the neuro ICU
0: Brian Hand scan ICU admission all right Amber
2: uh, yes, to the OR, after PAN scan.
0: What's your top three management priorities for the patient that you have right now?
2: So
1: uh, my main thing that I'm concerned about in this guy is an intracranial hemorrhage. Um, I kind of have decreased my suspicion for other things going on. Um, and I'm particularly worried that he, with his blown pupil um, On the left, and he's not moving his right side, that's pretty classic for uh, an uncle herniation. So, these are all very bad things that I'm worried about. So, kind of like Amber uh, talked about earlier, overall, when you're worried about a a traumatic brain injury that's severe, your goals of injury are to prevent secondary brain injury. Um, And so, you want to do everything you can to maintain any physiologic normalcy, prevent any cerebral ischemia and treat that elevated intracranial hypertension. So, so in the ER, that i think it's
0: incredibly familiar, Jenny.
1: Erin, <laughs> I am uh, quoting a brilliant paper, Pediatric Major Head Injury, written by our very own doctors Leach and Dr. Wilson.
0: Oh, brilliant <laughs> I think
1: people. I should get a lot of points for that.
0: <laughs> points for quoting <laughs> intelligent people. Very nicely
2: yeah.
1: done. <laughs> um, and I still... I think in the ER, our priorities are still airway management. This includes intubating and oxygenating that patient so that they have normal oxygen and CO2 parameters, not hyperventilating that patient, as Amber said, which is also in the literature from our brilliant Dr. Gaither um, in his observational study of large pre-hospital database. And then when, after you intubate, you always keep the head in neutral position, head of bed elevated to help decrease your ICP. This Second major thing, again, preventing or keeping everything normal. So prevent hypotension, um, keeping their blood sugar normal, normal temperature, using judicious volume management um, to just try and keep everything normal. And then third, I think you got to get this guy, um, like Brian said, to the scanner. and, uh, And I would be calling neurosurgery on the way to the scanner because I have such a high suspicion for an intracranial hemorrhage.
0: That's good. All right, Amber's. We're getting this guy uh, kind of packaged up because we all want to know what is going on. Um, any meds, any fluids, anything that you're getting set for this gentleman as you are uh, getting him packaged over.
2: I mean, one of the things I would look at. I'm assuming that the you know the vital signs we're looking at, the updated vital signs, um, obviously reflect uh, a patient that's getting worse. Uh, so we have a blood pressure that's, that's rising pretty sharply. And we also have a patient that's 95% on two liters nasal cannula. So in anticipation that this patient needs intubation, I would increase their oxygen. And then the other thing that I'm assuming is that this temperature was taken with a temporal thermometer like we often do with trauma patients. Um, and at 37.2, I'm questioning whether or not that's actually 38 Um, So I would take an oral temperature or somehow get a more, you can use a temp probe Foley if you're putting a Foley in, but I would get a core temperature on this patient and make sure that we're preventing some of the other things um, that can cause secondary brain injury. This may or may not be a patient that's a candidate for operative therapy, um, frequently with really severe traumatic brain injury. They are not. Um, But I would make sure that I did everything I can to prevent secondary brain injury. So we've sort of ruled out all of these other you know, internal bleeding maybe and some of the other things that we would distract our attention um, away from really this person's primary problem, which is a severe traumatic brain injury. So we want to prevent secondary brain injury, which is really hard to do when we get distracted um, because we really do lose focus on things that are hard to do um, because we don't practice them. So uh, frequently patients are hyperventilated. Frequently we don't monitor their uh, core temperature and frequently, we don't place them on enough oxygen um, to, to pre-oxygenate and prepare for um, an invasive procedure like intubation.
0: Uh, Amber, walk me through what you're going to do to intubate uh, patients. I want, I want you to tell me, what are you going to tell the RT? What are you going to tell the resident uh, to prepare for meds and to uh, actually do uh, when they're uh, placing the, the laryngoscope in the tube in order to help prevent secondary injury?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if we want to prevent secondary injury, we want to, first of all, make sure that they are well oxygenated. So this is the patient I'm putting on a non-rebreather. I'm putting on a nasal cannula and all the oxygen that I can uh, to prepare for intubation. Um, The other thing that I'm doing is making sure that their blood pressure can handle it. And then if we're extra concerned and have time to think about it, we can um, give medications to try to blunt Increases in intracranial pressure. Um, so, um, this may include pretreatment in addition to RSI medications if needed um, to try to, to blunt um, a sympathetic response that would go along with um, something as painful as uh, intubating somebody. Um, those would be the potential things I would think about. The other thing I would do is um, direct respiratory therapy to watch their ventilation rate. So, this is something I have to do on every single TBI patient. People get really excited. Um, They all get hyperventilated. Um, So that's the one thing that I I really watch out for um, and make sure that we're not doing that pre or post intubation. So, post intubation, um, everyone kind of yay, 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 we got the tube, and then no one pays attention to the ventilation rate. So, I put that patient on a ventilator as soon as I can. Um, But you have to understand that if you're taking them to the scanner, they're getting bagged on the way to the scanner, they're getting bagged on the way back from the scanner, and they're not on a ventilator. So, if they're not on the ventilator, Someone needs to pay attention to their ventilation rate, and one breath every six seconds is very slow. So there are rare, 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 rare cases in which you could uh, make any impact on a patient's outcome by hyperventilating them. Almost universally, you are harming a PBI patient by venti- by hyperventilating them. It is never something that we should do. It doesn't improve outcomes. Um, and we, we really harm patients and increase secondary brain injury with hyperventilation. So never, 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 never do it ever. Would you do it if you had
1: a patient who had normal pupils and then they blew a pupil right in front of you right there?
2: Would you hyperventilate them? If neurosurgery wants to hyperventilate their patient as they're wheeling them to the OR, Um, I I think they can make that decision. Um, I will not be hyperventilating my TBI patients.
0: That's probably the one time I would even consider that. So, all right, Brian, what are you getting ready for meds? What are you going to use to RSI this patient? And what are you going to use to keep them down?
3: So I I think I wanted to quickly hit on what Jenny had said earlier. And I think she did the right thing in terms of, we went through a primary survey and we didn't do any interventions. And I think that's important. And I think that's how I teach oral boards. But I don't think ATLS teaches it that way. Um, and this is a distinct thing that I think is emergency physicians, we're probably better at, at than ATLS. And this is no offense to surgeons, but they're not as good as the acute resuscitation as we are. And so with that, you, you assess the airway, you go on and say, okay, I'm going to prepare for intubation. I'm going to get my meds ready. I'm going to pre-oxygenate as Amber was hinting at. You're going to put them on knowing what you're going to do, the right things. But you're not going to intervene because if you take that airway right then, what was your disability exam? Well, in this patient, the disability exam is very important. So if I went A, B, C, D, E, I'm going to miss things. So then as I go to breathing, if I need to set up for a chest tube, set up for a chest tube. If I go to circulation, I need to get blood. Okay, start the massive transfusion protocol. So you should do attempts at intervention, but not the actual intervention until you finished your primary survey, then do the intervention. Nothing happens so fast in the ER. We have time to pre-oxygenate patients and they got to draw up the meds and you got to get an IV. So take your time. So when you're asking what meds would I give, I'll be honest, I'm a rock guy um, for trauma patients. I don't like sucks. Um, I think sucks has its place, but if you would say what of your intubations, I use rock 90% of the time. If I'm taking the airway, I want them down and I want them out. And I think one of the biggest problems that people have with rock is that, well, you've paralyzed them, but you haven't done anything for their pain or sedation. Well, I don't intubate someone unless I have sedation meds at the bedside and a drip hung. So I would have propofol and fentanyl ready as well. And I would use, depending on on trauma patients, depending on their um, blood pressure and hemodynamics, ketamine in a hypotensive, but in this patient I would use a Tominate. So I would use a Tominate rock, I would have fentanyl and propofol. As soon as the tube is placed, I'd give a 200 microgram bolus of fentanyl and I'd see what their pressure and vital signs are. And I would start them on a drip of fentanyl at hundred mics an hour. And then I would add the propofol on top of that based on what I see the vital signs. If their pressure drops out, I'm probably not going to add any propofol. Their proper pressure is still 210 over 110. I'll probably add that propofol, and I feel I have uh, the ability to do that.
1: Sackles, um, Dr. Sackles did a retrospective cohort study uh, using rock or comparing rocuronium and succinylcholine for severe head injuries, and there's actually an increase in mortality in patients that they use succinylcholine for, and that's thought to be secondary to a transient increase in their ICP. Um But the the advantage of succinylcholine is that it wears off a lot quicker than the rocuronium. So that's why our particular trauma surgeons don't like us using it, because we can't get neuro exams as frequently. But I agree. I personally would use rocuronium um, in this patient uh, and propofol. Um, the trauma and surgeons
3: then, are idiots for this. That's just stupid. Because when do they do a repeat neuro exam in the CT scanner? It's just total bull.
0: Love the enthusiasm, Brian, but save it for the soapbox if you win the art of medicine. All right, moving on.
1: <laughs> um, the other thing is, I, I suspect a, a head injury in this patient, um, an increased ICP. So I'd be giving hypertonic saline in this patient. You could also do mannitol. I think, like, you know, doing all these other things, like Brian was saying, your other interventions are. More important than trying to manage that ICP initially, but realistically, we do it at the same time. You get an IV, you can give them the hypertonic saline on the way to the CT scanner, which
2: is, I think, what we normally do. So, I mean, I would definitely encourage uh, the residents to read uh, the literature about hypertonic saline and mannitol treatment for the use of traumatic brain injury. Um, in severe traumatic brain injury, uh, it gets used a lot for minor traumatic brain injury in our, in our institution. Um, I, I don't think that it follows what the specific guidelines and recommendations are laid out. Um, so if you read the Brain Trauma Foundation TBI guidelines, they're pretty clear in their most recent update that that is really not sufficient evidence um, to support, especially the use of saline um, in patients just generally. Um, in their third edition, they did have some recommendations for using mannitol in like before monitoring, anyways. So, using this before we've got ICP monitoring in place, um, using it only in patients really with signs of uncle herniation. So, that may apply in this patient, but this recommendation was removed in their fourth edition. Um, so, they don't have any um, really strong <laughs> recommendations, at least from the Brain Trauma Fou- Tra- Foundation. Um, for providing hyperosmolar therapy for traumatic brain injured patients.
0: And then Jenny, any labs that you want for this patient that are actually going to make a huge difference for you versus the ones that we order just by convention If you can click the panel order button and they're all ordered.
1: I think for this patient coags are very important. Um, type in screen, I would still get my CBC and CMP, um, see if they have any underlying other issues. And I hope we got the finger stick sugar in the beginning.
0: The (laughs) EMS did get your finger stick blood sugar at the beginning and the blood sugar uh, was 185.
1: Beautiful.
0: So we get this patient over for imaging. We've got our FAST exam that is negative. Uh, We got a chest x-ray that shows left-sided rib fractures and left pulmonary contusions. Um, And you get him over to the CT scanner that shows a left 9mm epidural hematoma with midline shift and herniation. He also has a C two C three transverse process fracture, some pulmonary contusions on his pan scan, and a grade two liver uh, liver laceration. So, at the end of the workup, uh, Doctor Rice uh, is in a confident lead with twenty five points. Doctor Plitt in twenty with twenty three points. The two of you will be working. Uh, will be going on to the dispo. And Brian, we thank you for your time, and uh, we're going to give you some rest to go. Uh, hunt down some trauma surgeons during the dispo points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson level discussion of the discharge instructions admission calls should be top down with the most important information first writing the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission discharge instructions should include shared decision making follow-up instructions and explicit return precautions and of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. Uh, so <laughs> the, ED, the ED course, before we move on to the dispo. So reminder uh, that this is a 53-year-old male brought in by EMS after an ejected MVC. Um, we've got his physical exam that we've reviewed. His CBC shows a white count of 22, h of 14 and 48 with 20, uh, 285 platelets. Um, his electrolytes are normal. And his uh, liver function tests are mildly elevated with an AST of 95 and ALT of 125. Uh, his COAGs are normal, his FAST is negative, um, and his imaging we've already discussed with multiple left sided rib fractures and pulmonary contusions, a left 9 millimeter epidural hematoma with midline shift and uncle herniation. Transverse process fractures along a cervical spine and left pulmonary contusions integrated to liver lac, as well as an angulated distal radius fracture. Uh, so Jenny, uh, when you picked originally for your dispo, you wanted to send this patient to the trauma ICU after his PAN scan. So the trauma surgeons are eagerly awaiting your call. Hello, this Hello. is Dr. Trauma Surgeon.
1: Hi, Dr. Trauma Surgeon. This is Dr. Plenty emergency room. I've had a, I have a patient I'd like to admit to your service. This is a 53-year-old male involved in an MVC from which he was ejected, uh, 15 feet. He was found unconscious, unresponsive on arrival with GCS of seven, hypertensive, and berdipnic. Uh, we intubated him for airway protection. He was found to have a left nine millimeter epidural hematoma with midline shift and uncle herniation. Um, as well as some other injuries like pulmonary contusion um, and some rib fractures. He has uh, received hypertonic saline and neurosurgery has been called, I hope. Um, And we would like to admit him to your service.
0: (laughs) I haven't heard anything from neurosurgery so far. So I think neurosurgery may want to take this patient to the operating room first and then Uh, I think they can probably go on to the neurosurgery service after that, since it seems to be mostly a brain injury that's the problem.
1: I do agree this seems to be mostly a brain injury, and I do think he needs to go to the operating room first. Uh, However, he has multiple traumatic injuries, including um, a left pulmonary contusion and uh, some other fractures. Uh, So I think you guys would be the best to take this patient with his multiple Injuries?
0: Uh, We're really full right now, but um, I guess I can send a fellow down and we can kind of see what we can figure from there. So, all right. Dr. Rice, uh, the neurosurgeons are awaiting your call uh, as the trauma team is uh, in the operating room with another patient. Uh, So, uh, you may speak with them at any time. Hi, this is Dr. Neurosurgeon.
2: Hi, Dr. Neurosurgeon. This is Dr. Rice in the emergency department. I'm calling about a patient. Uh, that I'd love for you to come see down in the emergency department. It's a 53-year-old male uh, with a uh, severe traumatic brain injury, a l- large epidural hematoma, midline shift in, uh, with uncle herniation. So he was involved in a motor vehicle accident where he was ejected, uh, came in with a GCS of seven, uh, and was intubated upon arrival to the emergency department.
0: What's his GCS right now?
2: His GCS is currently a three T. We have not taken him off the sedation, but could do so upon your arrival to the emergency department to get uh, uh, another neuro exam.
0: Okay, what and did you guys? Came, what did you guys use to paralyze him?
2: He got rocuronium, which oh, is wearing gonna, off. As he's we he's going to be
0: paralyzed forever. Now I'm not going to know. How am I going to know what to do if he doesn't have an exam?
2: This is true. If you <laughs> could come down and evaluate the patient, the patient will be. Uh, The rocuronium was given about a half an hour ago, should be wearing off upon your arrival to the ED.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, I mean, if he's starting to herniate, will you hyperventilate him right now? And then I'll get down and see if he has some improvement. Maybe he won't need to go to the OR.
2: We have the patient currently on ventilator settings to protect his brain. And if you guys come down and and evaluate the patient, uh, that way you could take them to the operating room, potentially, or if there are other therapies you think might be more appropriate.
0: Okay. That sounds great. I will be right down. So thank you. All right. Excellent job to both of you for your dispo calls, uh, modeling, excellent professionalism and leading with the most important, uh, aspects of the case first without getting into the minutia and having a very professional, uh, retort to a, uh, Consultant that has other ideas to what you think needs to be done with the patient before him. I have to give this one to Doctor Rice for reinforcing the most important part of making a consultant call is I need you to come see the patient, please. (laughs) So great job to Amber! Congratulations for winning, and uh, now you get to take the seat with the art of medicine and the soapbox is yours.
2: Oh, I get my my TBI soapbox. This is amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll keep it short. I will say that the one thing we didn't really talk about here today that underlies all of the treatment in traumatic brain injury is something called cerebral blood flow. So we've all learned about the brain being in encased in a rigid skull and there's tissue, there's blood and there's cerebrospinal fluid. So when someone has a traumatic brain injury, we have to protect the cerebral blood flow. So all of the things that we mentioned today in terms of treatment priorities are A, to protect brain that has not been involved in the primary injury, but is vulnerable to secondary injury, and then protecting cerebral blood flow. So the hyperventilation protects cerebral blood flow, protecting their blood pressure, preventing hypotension, protects cerebral blood flow. So those are the things that we want to make sure that we're paying attention to. And um, the hyperventilation is really the big thing. I, I think that we, we miss a lot uh, and there's a huge opportunity for improvement in not only pre-hospital, but emergency department treatment of patients with TBI. If you look um, at the potential outcome benefit from neurosurgery, it's a very narrow range of patients and it's a very small number of patients. The number of patients that we can impact in terms of outcomes with good basic treatments is much, much, much larger than any of the neurosurgical interventions that we can possibly hope for for a patient. They can't go to neurosurgery and neurosurgery doesn't matter if we've killed their brain with secondary brain injury. So it is really up to the emergency department to manage that. And neurosurgery may have a couple of patients here and there that they can impact long-term with a neurosurgical procedure. The rest is all up to us.
0: It was excellent, Amber. And I think that uh, it's often the simplest interventions that we do that are the ones that make the biggest difference, even though we often want to do the sexiest interventions, the procedures, the Uh, uh, life-threatening, very dramatic things. And you're right, just the very basics of airway and breathing, uh, maintaining good perfusion are the most important things we can do after the patient's already sustained a primary injury, just to prevent secondary injury. So, well, thank you to our panel, uh, and uh, we appreciate your help with our uh, medical education, and we will see everyone next month.